Good evening, all, and welcome to another Mangum Talks production of Mangum Reads. We are here for our episode two, discussing Terry Pratchett's Guards, Guards, and with me, of course, is BJ. BJ, how's it going? Good, good. It's wonderful to be talking to you on this fine evening. Indeed, indeed. Discussing a book which I am, again, so tickled by what complete opposite views we have on. Yeah, you could say that. Of where I was legitimately tickled by the book, and you happily soldiered through it, apparently with the uh, added bonus that uh, your girlfriend was quite fond. Yeah, she she was quite fond of it, and and I I would agree with you on the, the tickling description, but it, to me, it was more like somebody was trying to tickle me, and it just wasn't working, and then it was awkward. <laughs> Very obviously and publicly trying to make a scene while tickling you kind of thing? Yeah, and it's like, oh, you're so ticklish, I'm going to do this. And, and then I was just like, no, I mean, I get that it could be funny, and I get that I should be laughing, but I'm not right now. It, it, seemed, it, it does have a bit of a pie-on-face style of funny that either works for you or really doesn't. And as you said, one of the, one of the things that always comes when you're appreciating a certain medium is uh, your perspective on it. You talked about how there were several works that you felt had similar themes and similar style, but just pulled it off better. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. And I also think it, you know, it, it's definitely a mood and maybe partially an age thing, sort of like what, what I wanted out of a book at that point in time. And so, you know, I, I guess that, that I didn't particularly enjoy it at this point in time doesn't, I, I feel like I shouldn't cast aspersions on the book itself and more just like my enjoyment of it. Oh, no, we all, we all have our particular tastes for any given moment. There's no judging of it. And I, you know, it, I really enjoyed when you brought Lee in, who had read, like, what do you say, 15 pages of the novel, but was ready to contribute for the last episode? It was 40 Kindle pages. 40, so, that's so yeah, like 15 paper. <laughs> and, and he desperately wants to come back for the world building. So. Oh, God, that's going to be a shit show. And, and that's, I think, why he wants to glory in it. As we discussed the last episode, we're dividing Guards, Guards up into three parts, which we'll probably do for a lot of the longer books we cover as part of this show. For this one, we're going to cover characters, because we discussed them in some detail, but they merit a closer look. And for the last one, we're going to address world building, which, as said, is going to be a bit of a train wreck, given that we're jumping in with the eighth book in a 41-book series. We were kind of playing catch-up with every page we read. And so it'll be perfect for... And, and I actually think it's a really good way to judge the world because... True. I mean, in, in, in many ways, it's essentially an in media rest kind of uh, thing where we're jumping in kind of in the middle and we can discuss, like, how much of the world that we felt was expounded on and, and, and is there. Admittedly, we aren't familiar with the entire world, but I think as a... How the as a function of how the medium is expressed, we can really discuss how the world building worked for this novel. Right, and as we will discuss next uh, next week or whenever else we just have time to record, I felt like it did a reasonable enough job of it, even if the entire you know pantheon of gods and most of the details related to that left me consistently baffled as to whether there actually is some detail provided about it or they were just intended for hijinks, jokes about laws and pro- about p- probability and fate. We will discuss that in greater detail then. For now, we have a fairly reasonably large ensemble of characters to uh, handle over the course of this. With the I, I love how you say we have a large ensemble of characters because because the other show that you're on... <laughs> True. It, it's not Game of Thronesy, and I appreciated it for not being that, at least when we're discussing it. 
yeah. So, so yeah, I, I would definitely say for, for many novels, it to a certain extent has, um, as Lee mentioned in the last episode, quite a number of points of view and fairly different characters. Yes, but anything compared to George R. 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 Martin's extended totem kind of looks small by comparison, but it doesn't mean that it doesn't put together an interesting eclectic bunch. Yes. But as, as we discussed over the last episode, the focus of this book is on the Ankh-Mor Pork uh, uh, City Watch, specifically the Night Watch, of which the series begins with, I believe, three major members of the Night Watch. Is that right, BJ? Uh, yes. Yeah. So, yep, three major members. Those would be Captain Vimes, Corporal Nobby, and Sergeant Colin. And uh, I won't make the same joke that I've made last time because our viewers or listeners might get tired of it, but I feel like he's not that creative with uh, some of his names. Yeah, which admittedly, I, I, I had to um, stifle a bit of laughing at myself because I forgot and did not pick up on the fact that he had named them Nobby and Colin and what those actually mean. Um, for some reason, I did not catch that when I was reading through it the first time. Does, does it take on a slightly different uh, bent, having read it to... Uh, your significant other? Uh, you know, I don't think she picked up on it either. So, yes, it does, in retrospect, talk about uh, race-mentioning questions when I'm spending several evenings discussing knobs and uh, colons around her. <laughs> uh, but, as said, uh, the, when uh, we discussed in the last episode, the real kernel of the story is the fact that our three main... Our three members of the Night Watch, and arguably our three main characters over the course of the story, are in an organization that has kind of ceased to have relevance. They're in a town that has was tr- found a novel way of confronting a crime wave by essentially legalizing crime, which effectively rendered the uh, City Watch and all of its members little more than fixtures, you know, a necessary fiction for appearance's sake rather than having any practical role. And while maybe two of our members are taking that well, our central character, Captain Vimes, Starts the story literally in the gutter from emotionally trying to deal with the fact that his beloved organization, his beloved city, has no relevance at all in the modern world that he's now living in. Which I think is kind of interesting that we don't hear anything essentially about the rest of the watch, because they're clearly part of it separately. And and I guess the other side of it is, I, I didn't pick up on him emotionally trying to deal with this, I kind of just... It was like, okay, he's getting drunk all the time, and, and that's kind of his character. Mm-hmm. But but I feel like you you uh, read into and, and assign depth to two characters that yeah. I don't know that isn't completely there, but I feel like you try and flesh them out a little bit more than, than the page might. Yeah, Lee assigned me the role on our other show, uh, GOT Questions Podcast, uh, to basically provide excessive commentary on certain minimal plot points. So I'm kind of finding it hard to break out of that mindset on this show. Fair enough. But, but I just wanted to remind you, Spencer, mm-hmm. this, this show essentially is book nerd bitching. So, <laughs> so, you, so you can't bring up points from the, the book to fill out the show because we just have the book. Oh, I can, both read it. I can <laughs> find ways. If we're going to discuss books, I'm allowed to bring the entire library of my mind to bear on each of these individual pages, because that's what a literary course is about, sir. 
Yes, 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 fair enough. Just don't get lost in your well, you, space up there. Okay, well, I, here, here, here's how I'll defend this point. The opening scene we have of Captain Vimes, which very much introduces his character, is him essentially lamenting the woman that is the city and how she has effectively abandoned him. That he is in love with the city. He views it as true love and affection as if it was a real embodied person. And the fact he assigns it to be a woman becomes relevant over the course of the story. And he feels very much like that he has been betrayed, that his city itself has objected it, that it has spurned his love, that he has dedicated himself to the cause of this wonderful woman, just to keep the fiction that he provides, and that it has left him in the dirt and left him in the gutter, and that whatever purpose he had built up around serving this glorious thing has been lost to him, and he doesn't really have a purpose in his life because of it. So do you think that... In previous parts of his life, the the Night's Watch was a more functioning organization, or do you think he was a little bit more like Carrot, I guess, who who just sort of has ended up here not knowing what he was getting into? It's really ambiguous in my mind, and it really depends. We'll talk about another character uh, here in a second, Lord Vetinari, the current patrician leader of the city. But a lot of that question hinges on how long the patrician has been in power. Because we know from from what we know about the story that he was the one who put these new rules in place that legalized the Thieves' Guild, that legalized the Assassin's Guild, that rendered the Watch essentially an irrelevant note in history. So I think the books imply that he's not been in power for a very long time. Like, I don't don't think they suggest that he's been in power for, like, more than ten years, whereas Vimes has seemingly built his entire career in the Night Watch. So So, did you think that the how the city runs is new because i i guess i didn't think how how the city has been running is particularly new in terms of like at least five to ten years of this essentially legalizing everything and then the the you know the thieves guild controls all the thieving in the city assassins all the killing and assassination etc mm-hmm. well I mean, it's hard to say with this city, because this is a city that is so willing to just go with the flow that they happily crowned and were willing to uh, uh, worship and serve a dragon when it essentially moved into the castle and refused to leave. So how quick they transition through major life events is pretty impressive. So it's hard to tell how long they've been, how long it took them to adjust to this new paradigm. It could have been pretty brief and they would have just, you know, promptly gone along with it. Okay, I guess, like, in, in, and we'll get a little bit more into Lord Ventnari, but I, I feel like that he didn't move that quickly to just legalize everything. It was sort of like a transition. A lot, there was a lot of basically illegal stuff going on, mm-hmm. and he sort of figured out that the best way for him to control everything is to legalize it, and it was a little bit more of a soap process. And that's kind of why. Like, I guess it really colors the Captain Vimes character if he started out when there was a lot more of a role of the Night Watch, which I feel like would have had to have been quite a while ago because presumably the city was fairly lawless in leading up to the the changes that basically made the guilds take over the law you know, enforcing right. the laws. No, no, I agree. I mean, the sense of loss that's tied to his character, the much that he spends pretty much all of the book living in the past and nostalgically waxing about what the watch was, what it stood for, who their great heroes were, the various prior members of the organization. Um, 
it really is a key aspect of driving his character. So I agree with you that for him to have that profound sense of loss, he must have had something that he'd experienced beforehand. I don't, I'm not willing to believe that he was just quoting stories he heard from other people. So, so I guess to me, if I want to sort of put things together, what makes the most sense to me is like essentially when he was a rookie that they actually did stuff and and they had a lot of losses and that sort of like had the city spiral out of control around when, you know, veterinary came to power. And so he's really lamenting like what he joined the watch for. Well, what makes an interesting point of contrast is that I think the book pretty, pretty much suggests that, uh, his two fellow members of the Watch, Sergeant Cohen and Corporal Nobby, have been in the Watch around the same amount of time as him. They're all veterans of it. They've all been in it in years. I think Sergeant Cohen in particular may have even been in the Watch larger, longer than he has. Yeah, so, so I guess that was what I was kind of imagining, that Sergeant Cohen was sort of that the gruff sergeant that you sort of have as a character trope that's in many, many things that's, you know been there for you know is essentially a permanent fixture yeah. and that nobby was a, came in a bit after that right. and I, I, never really experienced the full force of or the full power and such of the night watch yeah for for nobby to have persisted in any self-respecting organization seems doubtful it seems like nobby would have been brought on once things were starting to spir- spiral into either corruption or irre- um, irrelevance Otherwise, you think he would have been nipped in the bud pretty early. Or he could have been sort of fairly new and, and a little bit of a goof, and then it didn't really matter once they stopped doing anything. Sure. So. But one thing I find interesting is that the two other members of the Black Watch have seen it fall from whatever relevance. They've been in it long enough to at least see it transition, certainly Sergeant Cohen. Yeah. But neither of them are as emotionally wrecked by it. Vimes is an alcoholic that whatever truly impressive skills or truly impressive perspective and incredible dedication he has he's listless he's comforting himself with drink because he's lost his purpose whereas you say he's listless but he seems to be listing about quite a bit what yeah, yeah I, th- I think sergeant cohen says at one point that uh, each person has a natural degree of intoxication or a natural degree of sobriety uh the problem with uh vimes is he's just too naturally sober that he, need, he needs a certain amount of alcohol to actually be normal. Um, but, I mean, yes, he's, he goes between bar and bar like a, sh- like a ship just blown by the wind. But Colin, we know, has a family life. He has a wife. Yeah. He has children. I think maybe even have grandchildren. Uh, he doesn't see her much. They, I think the book humorously describes that they essentially communicate with each other by letter. Yeah, the, I, I, again, like, I feel like Sergeant Colin is has it ticks off many stereotypes yes he, he uh, the book takes pains to say that both him and nobby are stereotypes they are tropes that he yeah. that colin it well it takes pains to say they are and then subvert them in various ways that they expand their characters but it for the first initial description in many of the original pages for colin it basically just says imagine the sergeant this is him yeah, exactly. You know, the sergeant that you're imagining him, that, that's exactly him. And, and you know, the the wife that, that he doesn't get along with and, and probably yells at him all the time. And he basically, you know, sits there in silence and she cooks terrible food and, you know, he's forced to eat it. And, and you know, children scrabbling around him and, as he tries to unwind from, you know, his night watch. Uh, now look who's reading into the text. You're describing an entire family life here. 
Right, but uh, you get the sense in, in the description of how he interacts it's with it's his true. wife. Yeah. Uh, and I, it's like that that's the the I feel like the broad strokes that he's trying to paint. I mean, if we just go by the the random lines in text, I feel like the characters are mostly, you know, two to two and a half dimensional, mm-hmm. but you can see what what the tropes and and what what the what could be? Oh yeah, I, I, I agree with you. That's a reasonable interpretation. I think one, one of my one of my favorite early lines of the book is that his children were conceived through particularly aggressive penmanship, uh, which is an interesting description of how a, a essentially long distance relationship where you're living in the same building it would would be handled. Yeah, it, it, it's the uh, you know pu- pushing their 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 beds together on on you know, rare odd night. Um, or, or something like that. It, oh, yeah. it actually reminds me of, um, there's a show that I particularly like called Top Gear, where at some point they make fun of British sex. And um, the the main presenter, Jeremy Clarkson, is, oh, like, I can I can show you about, you know, upper class British sex. I'll show it to you right now. And every, everybody's just like, wait, what? No. And, you know, he gets a, an audience <laughs> member and, and uh, a female audience member and sort of pulls her out of the crowd. And it's like, all right, I'll show you right now. And and he kisses her on the cheek and says, okay, dear, have a good night. I'm going to have some sherry. <laughs> gotcha. And... <laughs> And, and that's the uh, sort of upper class English sex relationship, and and I, I feel like sort of that vague trope is being played out in in their uh, penmanship classes, shall we say? Very much so. Very much so. But, but the point I was going for is that his other two watchmen are able to in some, are able to emotionally deal with the collapse of the organization because in some ways they either have a life or a motivation outside the watch. Colin's got a family. He's got that that to fall back on, that to support himself, and he seems to almost care for the other watch members like a mother him. Uh, Nobby is corrupt as hell and kind of is like a fish in water with respect to what the city is, and so I guess do, do you think that Nobby's really corrupt? I I wouldn't say I don't think corrupt is necessarily the right word. I think he's just inherently criminal. I mean, we we know from a lot of the descriptions of him, like when he's taking carrot on the original tour around the city that he was basically scouting for places for himself to rob. That whenever he's in a situation of when somebody is down on the ground, his default response is, okay, this is the moment I now kick them repeatedly in the testicles. And then, you know, loot their purse. And loot their purse, yes. So I think in some ways, Nobby is very much someone who would have grown up and be a product of the city of Ankh-Morpork. I picture him being a person that was raised in the city and raised in the culture of the city. And as as a result of that, in many ways, he just works better in the city than Vimes does because he's content with what it is. It's his home. He doesn't. So, see- so I'll, I'll throw this out for you. So how do you like his backstory being, you know, he was a sort of two-bit criminal that was taken in. They sort of lost the paperwork, and it was just like, oh, why is this dude here? And he's like, oh, I'm... Uh, a recruit for the Night Watch. I would buy that in a heartbeat. Yeah, yeah. I, I would be perfectly content with the fact that they basically arrested a street kid, put him in a cell, and then kind of went, eh, you know, he's around here all the time. Let's just kind of give him a badge. Here, have a donut. I mean, he seems to know, like, where, where the places that are going to get robbed and, yeah. and you know, the goings-on in the city, you know, may as well uh, employ him. 
and they're, they're an interesting pair because they have a lot of the skills and knowledge that you would want in members of a police organization. I know about the criminal practices. They have a certain understanding for paperwork and procedure. They're both just, you know, war they're both just conditioned by what the organization is now in the city that they're operating in. Essentially, they're just yeah. two very efficient survivors. I, f- I feel like a, a great prequel to this, and I feel like it could make a f- very funny movie, mm-hmm. um, is basically a, an Ankh-Morpuk police academy. Oh, like the police academy movies? Exactly, yeah. That would be funny. That the city... I feel like this is the characters that they're kind of setting up. Yeah. And, and they're two characters which I think are in some ways pretty near and dear to Pratchett. I mean, he named them Dobby and Cohen, which clearly humored him. And they're clearly support characters by which the novel was, uh, by which a lot of the other characters revolve around. I also looked it up. They essentially, of the City Watch characters, are the most common ones to appear in books that aren't otherwise about the City Watch. That they kind of okay. just serve around to jump into various other Discworld novels. So I think in some ways these are perhaps two of his, either two of his favorite characters or two of the characters he just has the most fun kind of serving as his own little roving Greek chorus. Or, or I could put my two cents in and, and say, well, he likes saying... Not be a cohen. So... It's perfectly possible that he just needs the necessary amount of potty humor in each novel. Don't know. Yeah. But, <laughs> as I said, these are Vimes' immediate support network over the start of the show, which Colin in particular cares for Vimes quite a bit. Nobby, it's harder to say. Um, yeah. Despite Nobby's apparent fondness for various dance classes, we don't necessarily get much of a view of his character other than his corruption and his love, his ability to seemingly mass-produce uh, the, the, the burned ends of uh, cigars whenever he needs to. But yep. well, the, that's mm-hmm. not true. Navi gets a little bit more of a, a lot more of a fleshing out. I feel like. Oh, I, I would just say. So, so when he deals with um, oh, Lady Ramkin, yes, that's Lady true. Ramkin and and the other ladies that that are associated with her, and he basically says like, this is how you deal with you know lords and ladies, and and yeah. you know, he, he has a sense of decorum. He, he has a sense of decorum that he avoids like the plague until he absolutely needs it. And even then, eh, not so much, but he knows. He, he, knows, he knows. And what? he really seems to be legitimately, this is true. I forgot about this. He really does seem to be working hard to actually put on airs around, around Lady Ramkin. He seems to actually, I mean, she has this almost a mystical power to make people feel inspired in themselves. It's kind of similar to Carrot in her own way. And he really seems to gravitate and appreciate it. He consistently takes pains to show her the due he feels that she deserves. And and I guess I feel like this this probably shows a little bit of Pratchett being English. Uh, true, true. He is of the lower classes respecting the the genteel Victorian nobility. And and the genteel Victorian nobility is very good at at, at you know inspiring the the uh people around them and and has a very strong sense of noblesse oblige and and you know all, all of the things that are very much associated with the the upper crust and and you know the lords and ladies of of our uh distant past which is interesting because I, I i agree with that uh, as being pratchett's concept of the nobility is what the basis of their power is their degree their degree of ability to inspire those around them to motivate those around them because we see with uh our known noble character and uh our other 
in, seeming uh, unknown to himself noble character, <laughs> that they have this almost supernatural ability to inspire, to motivate, to compel individuals to the cause that they believe just and proper, that they or, want them to go towards. Them that something. Which um, the patrician, Lord Vetinari, despite his incredible intelligence, despite his incredible ability, does not have that natural ability. His way of doing it is by very skillful manipulation, which works. It works very well. He uses it on Vimes several times over the course of this story. But it doesn't have the same make-you-feel-good-about-it-in-the-end kind of way that Carrot and Lady Ramkin do. But to uh, go into our other characters, as I said, Vimes is very much rudderless. He's, been, he's lost his power. He's lost motivation. He's lost... Who he's, he's lost the real drive by which he's invested the person that he is. He is a watchman. He is proud of the fact he's a watchman. It's the very basis that he views himself as a character. And so with it reduced to irrelevance, he's reduced to irrelevance. And so he just kind of floats between different drunken stupor moments. But over the course of the story, essentially three people uh, are fighting for various aspects of his soul, are trying to get him motivated uh, in various ways. And I feel like those three are the new junior member of the uh, Night Watch, Carrot, uh, Vimes' potential love interest over the course of the story, Lady Ramkin, and the patrician, who seems to have an incredibly knowledgeable, who seems very, very much aware of what he needs to say to Vimes to get Vimes to do the shit he needs Vimes to do. Yeah, well, so I, I would throw in Nobby as well, as the things are good how they are. Yeah, okay, that, that's another person who's fighting for the various aspects of his soul. True. I was representing but, three but, people trying to change him in some ways, or motivate him in some oh, ways. Okay, it, it, so, 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 so I guess, and, and I think Nobby changes, and his pull changes throughout the story, but at least in the beginning, Nobby is very comfortable and happy with the way things are, and basically is the, you know, if Vimes ever, you know, thinks that he might want to investigate some somebody... Nabi was probably showing up with uh, a strong gale or two. Right. Uh, yeah, Vimes, Vimes' opinion of Nabi over the course of the story varies a little bit. Some of his earliest moments that we hear him talk about uh, Nabi is to basically look at Colin like an idiot because he decided to send Nabi out with Carrot to go learn the ropes of the city. Um, to which Vimes basically says, okay, let's go get them before they already get themselves arrested by somebody else. Um, yeah. But by the end of the story, it's a bit of a touching moment of when he feels like, when he thinks that Nobby, along with all the rest, have been blown apart and destroyed, and then finds Nobby covered in filth wandering out of the lake. They actually share a bit of a, I wouldn't necessarily say it's a touching moment, but it kind of is, of where Vimes seems happy enough in his own way that Nobby is not dead. Yeah. And, and so, like, I, I think it's sort of an interesting progression of sort of everybody to a little bit more of a functional uh, role in the city as opposed to just a, you know, a stuffed shirt in right. the city. And, and, and I think that, that Nobby, because of his upbringing, because of sort of what he brings to the book and his comfort with the city is the, the night watch embodiment of, what's going on in the city. I think that's a very accurate description. I think it's also worth noting about his character, how he, how he ends up as well, that we talk about him as being corrupt. We talk about him being a criminal, 
But when he's given essentially the opportunity to accept all the rewards in the world for the services that he and the other members of the Night's Watch have rendered, they don't ask for much of anything. That they are, I, I feel like in some ways he embodies the Victorian standards for what the acceptable ambitions of the lower classes should be. That, yes, they're corrupt, yes, they're criminal, but it's a good thing that they don't really want much out of the world other than a hot beverage at the, at the end of the day when they come home. Yeah, which is actually kind of interesting, because, so I looked it up, and, and Pratchett was born in 48, so... He, he was born in a very modern British world, or at least the tail end of what was the uh, noble society. Right, and, and, so I feel, and, and so I sort of wonder if it's him looking back on what, you know, London might have been and things like that, but, but it just, I expected him to be older given how he portrays the different classes in this society. Right. You may need, to a certain degree, you may be offering a certain degree of satire what people's expectations of those class interactions were. Oh, he, I'm sure, because, you know, there are loads of British TV shows like Faulty Towers oh, sure, and, sure, sure. and uh, uh, Flying Circus and things like that, which, which essentially poked fun at a lot of the same things that he's less so poking fun of and, and more incorporating into the book. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess, you know, I, don't, I feel like he's not particularly poking fun at, you know, the noblesse oblige of, of the upper class. And, yeah. um, I mean, he's sort of trotting out maybe in a funny way to a certain extent, like the lower classes, but I don't feel like he's, he's really poking at them. No, as you said, he seemed, part of his style seems to be is to take a well-worn character archetype and insert him into the story with almost the expectation that you'll kind of fill in the details around him because you're so familiar with what the archetype is. Yeah. Um, but going into the characters that uh, are propelling Vimes back into uh, motivation and relevance and willing to take the, the uh, Night Watch into a new chapter, I think the first one to really start with is, in a different novel who would probably be our main character, Carrot. Because Carrot fits every archetype of the hero's journey in his own little quirky, naive way. Yes, Carrot is is the the main character that I'm very glad we we didn't spend a lot of time in because because that that book has been written many times. Oh yeah, and I think I think the author is in many ways mocking that book with this character, where it is so apparent from like the first times you meet him that he is the king, that he is the heir to the throne, that he is Aragorn of a different novel come back to the city. He is built. He is massive. He has. Uh, a sword that was given to him by his his noble upbringing yep. that you know followed him as a baby that was raised in a different land yep. by by a king and you know we find out at the very end that, that he has a royal birthmark uh, but but he is the the hero that doesn't go on the journey oh yeah and, and the he, they talk about over the the various peasants in the city all talk about it. What are the various archetypes of kings? Like that they bring law, that they that they bring justice, that they have a birthmark, that they you know were a scion raised in the woods somewhere. And the book is just delighting in the fact that you're just checking these off as you go with Carrot. That the first thing he does when he arrives in the city is learn all the laws and start enforcing them, regardless of the fact that the book of laws he's reading is a couple hundred years old and crime has been legalized since those books were published. That he bears, and and, and hmm. many of the things that the book references are completely out of date and make absolutely no sense. 
but he doesn't seem to have a very good grasp of the nuances of language anyway, so it, that's half the fun. Yeah, it's, it's a mix of that, and it's a mix of he is so damn charismatic. He's got this, as we talked about, this kind of noble-ish talent that when he speaks, everyone pays attention. When he has an opinion, everyone is inclined to share it. So that over the course of this book, as he's clearly enforcing laws that are so damn old, the book he's reading actually says the laws of the cities of Ankh and Morpork before they were combined into one city, no one ever raises at any point that the laws aren't good anymore. Everyone just kind of immediately goes, well, he's saying it. Uh, I guess, I guess, I guess it's truth now. I mean, the other side of it is in a lawless city, when somebody shows up with a badge and tells you these are the laws, you kind of go along with it. Yeah, and when that person is 6'7", looks a bit like a Greek god, and carries a sword that is almost impossibly sharp, though despite that fact is the most unmagical blade in all history, it's hard to tell that person no in any polite way. Yeah, and and I also think that, that it's sort of funny that, that Pratchett does this, but basically he casts doors as the as to why he has a character that is so hilariously stilted, mm-hmm. but very similar to other books, perhaps, where, you know, the main character is, well, you know, we don't get jokes and, you know, we, we enforce all the rules and this is sort of how we do things and we take everything to the letter of the law and and it's like, well, the dwarves are like that and they don't get anything, so that's why this random character is completely different than every other character other than, you know, vaguely the dwarves that you don't really meet and even the dwarves in the city are, are a lot more normal. Oh, yeah. Well, they've, been, they've integrated into the city to such a degree that Carrot is outright appalled when he sees what their cult, what the city life culture of dwarves are. His first interaction with them is to essentially shame them all with the uh, memories of their distant Jewish mothers looking <laughs> sadly at them. Yes. It's, it's sort of one of those, uh, there's no one who believes so much as, as a convert. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and so, because he's not a dwarf, he he probably you know probably feels like he needs to make up for not being a dwarf by being the best dwarf. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's and, being being the best dwarf possible, loving the dwarf the, the female dwarf with the most softest of beards, all the features that dwarf should be associated with, including over the course of the novel, continually writing stories back to his writing letters back to his parents and enclosing all of his salary like any good dwarf in the city should. Exactly. You know, how else are, is the leader of the dwarves going to make do with all the money that they have, if not for the salary from the city? Yeah, yeah, you, you, you know, running a, running your own gold and iron mine really just isn't as profitable in these days as it used to be. You really need the, what was it, $10 a month salary to really sustain the entire family. Exactly. But he, uh, Carrot is, again, as we talked about, very much a collection of archetypes about the classic uh, hero archetype. In many another novel, he would be the, fr- the main character in the main story. In many another more serious novel, the entire book would be built around his journey to reclaim the throne. Whereas this book just seems to enjoy making light of that fact, of making it readily apparent what his story is or should be in a different medium, but is not here. At least not yet. Yeah, and and it's also kind of semi-appropriate that he ends up sort of being a minor character and a lot of his 
he he's very much a supporting character in, in this uh, in this book, and and I, I, you know, the more we talk about it, I guess yeah, I I do appreciate you know his letters home and and him basically trying to figure out what his place is because I feel like because he's essentially the main character mm-hmm. when he's not written as such, he's still trying to do the main character things as a side character, and it sort of goes about as well as. <laughs> you might expect of, you know, some guards, guards, you know, arrest this man. Yeah, and the advantages that he have are that, again, he is the hero of the story, but he's not the main character. So everything he sets his mind to, he wins. That every right. every bar fight he is in, between his strength, between his charisma, and between his protective, he always, he always emerges successful. Whenever he goes in to arrest somebody, like when he goes in to arrest the leader of the Thieves' Guild... Rather than stab him, everyone just kind of stands back because he walks in like he owns the place. And again, everyone in the story is kind of aware of the fact that they're in a classic fantasy novel. So nobody goes to stop him. Yeah, when, it's like, of course, you like you would let, you know, the main character walk in because like you don't want to die. No. Otherwise, he's going to kill you like that. That non-magical sword has got to be something, you know, really special, like hands off. Yeah, I, st- I still love when the palace guards are confronted by uh, I think it was just Vimes. And they're disinclined to attack him because he's by himself and clearly putting forward signs that he's the hero of the story. Yes. I appreciate that the characters are seemingly aware of how their universe is structured around classic heroy tropes. And I enjoy how much with Carrot those go to their zenith in the end of where, given his principles, given what he's embodied, of course when the dragon is taken down and at the mercy of the town, he's going to go arrest it and then protect it from anyone harming his prisoner. Because that's what this hero would do. Exactly. You know, that, that that's that's what he is, and that, that's who he is. And, and you know, uh, because, you know, uh, uh, somebody in your custody must be protected. So so it's very much the, to, to call him a do-gooder, I feel, feel like uh, misses, misses it a little bit, but he is definitely of the uh, lawful good persuasion, so, shall we say. He definitely has airs of a deadly do-right kind of figure, but I think that it's an, it's a, it, the book doesn't stick to that because the world he's operating in isn't that world. He's very much the hero of the story and the world responds to it. But it, a large portion of the humor is to see an individual like that functioning in a city which has been corrupt for as long as people can remember. But in terms of the overall plot progression, as we say, he's the hero, but he's not the main character. So his main role is really to motivate Vimes to give a shit again. To see an individual who actually does, maybe as Vimes did in his youth, really care about the law, really care about justice, really be motivated to be willing to try to work to change things. Even though, even if society is constantly opposed to it. And I guess the other thing I would say is the best way to learn to do something is to teach. And so because now there's this new recruit that is excited to learn and, and sort of needs to be taught what the night what Night's Watch is, I think that might be another reason that Captain Vimes is spurred on to actually do his job and, and investigate what's going on because it's like he needs to be an example for Carrot now because, you know, he is the, you know, he's the main character essentially. And it's just like, all right, well, you know, if I need to teach this excited young and, you know, impressive character, like what he's 
going to be doing, then I need to show him and do it. Yeah, very much so. Um, moving on from there, I think, we've, I think we've addressed Carrot's role in the story pretty well. I think I'd say the next character that really tries to bring Vimes out of his his funk, the own miasma that is his life, is Lady Rampkin. And it, her motivation is of a different kind. It's still a bit of a noble touch to things, but there's a different element by which she's motivating him to give a damn and care about the story, which I think is a little bit more personal. <laughs> I, I mean, the, the story takes pains to frame her as being a human embodiment of the city, not only in her physical appearance, not only in the fact that she is presumably the most powerful noble lady in the city, perhaps other than the patrician, but in how Vimes builds her into either a replacement for his love or at least an embodiment of his love for the city itself. Which I, I find kind of interesting because she definitely is very set apart from the city. Very intentionally um, so. The, the description of where the, the nobility live is essentially a, a completely different, is essentially not part of the city. Which, I mean, I guess sort of makes sense with, you know, the, the Lord's Lady lords and ladies manners being you know away from the uh rough and tumble you know dirty alleyways and things like that they're not going to be in the center of the city Mm -hmm. but for her to be sort of a replacement it's interesting that it's i guess within the city limits um you know there aren't many incorporated cities in the u.s that have you know impressively defined limits right um but, you know, not many are hilariously sprawling and can have things like, you know, lords and ladies ma- manners, except for a couple, I think. Yeah. Um, Atlanta is one of the ones that sort of just like encompasses, it's going to encompass all of Georgia at some point. Oh, it give it time, yeah. Um, but, you know, it's, it's one of those things that is just like, she's up on high and in a completely removed section of Aunt Marpok. And... Okay. I think that that divide is kind of interesting in terms of how she is as a character and maybe because she's separate, she's able to help Vimes come out of what the city has currently become to be better. Yeah, I've heard it described before that in most classical societies, the rich either moved up or they moved out in terms of where they lived. They either lived on the highest point in the city or they lived in the countryside. Um, Which makes sense because of how... Uh, crap rolls downhill. Was. Yes. <laughs> I mean, that, that, that's, that's probably the literal reason the nobility lived like that, is that literally the shit needed to flow somewhere and it would be much better if it flowed and pooled in somebody else's backyard. And if you ever go to Seattle, the uh, there's some underground tours which are very entertaining, but that is one thing that apparently Seattle dealt with in intensively and had many, many problems with um, and was a place that indoor plumbing was hilariously important for. I'm sure. Um, um, one thing I guess. One thing that makes Lady Rampkin interesting is that, like we talked about, she's meant to embody a lot of the stereotypes about the Victorian nobility. She's pretty distantly removed from the affairs of most of the people. She's wealthy enough that she can engage, she can dress however she wants, she can appear poor, she can act and live practically poor, because she has the luxury to do so. 
She can focus most of her life on just little idle hobbies of breeding the equivalent of this world's uh, overly inbred puppies. Um, yes. Oh, so so this is where they discuss that that you know she's rich enough that she can act like she's poor. Yeah, which is a great line. But it is not in this book. I the, the boot theory is not in this book. I found how I found that, of where okay. it was in my Reddit saved history of favorite fantasy <laughs> quotes. I had read it before this book, and so it pushed it into this book when I read it, as if it yeah. was from it. But it's, it's a great theory, which if we ever read another book in the series, we can talk about them. Yes. Um, uh, but what's interesting... But what's, so so mm-hmm. my girlfriend will continue to take issue if we keep referring to it as dog breeding. She is hilariously insistent that, that her obsession with these swamp dragons is it's horses. You know, I'm if, if, if I'm around her, I'm willing to keep to that fiction, but... The level of inbreeding, the level of inefficiency, the level of these things, not having any right to exist in the wild or any right to exist at all but for the machinations of man, that's breed puppies. That's yes, straight I, breed I, I, puppies. I agree with that part, the breed puppies, but since she is a large animal vet and specializes in horses, I think the basically completely non-functional digestive system uh-huh, True. where she's like, Oh, these are horses. Clearly. That, that, and, that's true. The level of colic that just runs with horses ties into this novel. Well, I think. Yes. That, that's a, anyway, that's a good point. Uh, one of the things that's an interesting difference from that is Pratchett puts forward all those tropes but then necessarily converts them to how a noble person embodying those tropes would have to be in this setting, is that this is a fantasy world. For someone to be of noble stock, they would have been relatively recently descended from somebody with a very big axe that was cutting people's heads off. And Lady Rampkin is not far removed from that lineage. She is very much of pretty recent Viking nobility and embodies those traits both physically and to a certain degree emotionally. Yeah, see, the... uh... The stock is somewhat stocky. Um, <laughs> Good line. But the 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 uh, character that that it puts me in mind of, or at least the description, um, there's a brief character in uh, Douglas Adams' Hitchhiker's Guide mm-hmm. that basically it's this guy that has a fondness for fuzzy hats because he's a direct descendant from. Genghis Khan. Yep, yep. I remember and, that character. You know, he's this massive dude that works in you know some middle of nowhere. I think he's a, a, a paper pusher somewhere. But but you know he sort of wants a battle axe and has these feelings that that, that he's meant for something greater because he's he is the direct descendant of Genghis Khan and and you know likes the the, the hats that you know we sort of picture Genghis Khan with and and that's sort of what puts me in mind of of their of Pratchett's description of uh, Lady Ramkin that this is in her blood but that's not what she actually does yeah very much so very much so she is of warrior noble nobility but she her real care in life is caring for baby dragons. Yeah. Um, what what I find interesting is that um, the book takes pains to kind of screw with those twin worlds of where the first world very much is pushing her towards the idea that she's going to be the princess in need of rescuing, 
and the book necessarily kind of railroads her in that direction. To which her response, upon realizing she's being railroaded in that direction, is to grab a friggin' broadsword and charge screaming down a hallway. <laughs> to which, to keep the plot going, the book literally trips her up so that she can be defeated in this scenario, so that she can continue to be the uh, princess in need of rescuing in the end. I was going to say, and, and it's also the other way around a little bit earlier, because essentially Caption Vimes shows up at her door, yep. worse for wear, and he essentially is is rescued as the damsel in distress. Very much so, yeah. They, and, and put in, like, a nightshirt. Or, she, she basically does, does the thing that all female characters go through in all fantasy novels, which they end up comfortable in bed, in night clothes and there's sometimes in in sort of more recent novels that question of how did i end up here sometimes boys sometimes not but usually just like huh i'm not wearing the clothes that that i got knocked out in i wonder how i ended up this way and now a comely last that i didn't previously know is kind of vaguely caring for me medically and also flirting with me while I'm uncomfortable. This book is delighting in playing with that trope to no end, and Lady Rampkin's only too happy to take part. Yes. Um, uh, she, she has a little bit of a vibe of Nurse Ratchet for, for a little while, but that quickly goes away. Yeah, a much more, a much warm and fuzzy version of Nurse, Nurse Ratchet, maybe. <laughs> um, but... As said, one of her key bits of things that she does is to motivate Vimes to action. That's usually one of her roles in the story of where, because of maybe of her noble blood or just because that she's a good soul, if she walks into a room and tells you, you know, you're good and I believe in you, you believe it too. You're motivated to do it. Given Captain Vimes' descriptions, or at least the book descriptions, I'm not sure good soul is his perfect motivating factor? Uh-huh. Maybe pair of good souls? Well, you know, the maybe focuses of his motivation, you know, orbit around the good soul thing. Sure. Um, but... She, she, has, she has a couple of attributes that he admires. That are described in titanic detail at every opportunity, yes. Um, but Vimes takes pains over the course of the story to frame himself as not a hero, but he's ashamed of the fact that he's not a hero. He's not motivated to risk himself anymore. He's not going to throw himself into the fire, and he'll keep even saying these things as she really he's becomes himself a, into the fire. Yeah, as, as he throws himself into the fire, often for the purpose of protecting or rescuing or working in service of her. That yes. there are several moments of the course of the story that he throws himself into the most dangerous situation possible because he feels that she needs to be protected. I mean, one scene that tickled my girlfriend to no end is when they're confronted with the noble dragon, and Lady Ramkin saying, okay, there's a dragon, I know how dragons work, essentially does the verbal equivalent of walking up and batting it on the nose with the newspaper. And for about a half second it works, until Vimes needs to jump in and pull her out of the way as where she was standing is now reduced to fire. Yeah. But... As said, she provides a degree of motivation, even to the very end, when Vimes arrives at our climactic battle, it's in trying to rescue her from being offered as a virgin sacrifice to the dragon. Um, Because, well, I think the book takes pains to say, as much as she's content with her hobbies, as much as she seemingly is content with who she is and how she likes and uh, the life that she's leading, it's a pretty lonely life that she leads. In some ways, she's clinging to Vimes in part because he's been one of the few connections that she's had to the outside world 
maybe in years or ever. It sounds like, you know, there's been a serious decline of the noble class. And so what would have been the case in presumably years past that, you know, she would have been married off or maybe, you know, her father was a little bit more okay with her focusing on her hobbies. And and clearly she's a little bit less of the normal, like, fainting violet and getting married off to for a a treaty or something like that or, or, or... whatever else that they would do, she's sort of a little bit older and, and a little bit more on the fringes of that society. Um, it's not completely clear because she seems to have a lot of uh, dog breed or dragon breeding friends that sort of come help out. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, I think it's implied they don't live in town though. Like she's maintains communication with him by like a letter or something. Uh, yeah, but they do come help out. They do do show up. They do show up. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. yeah. So, so they do show up. So, so it's like, I don't think that they're that far away, but you sort of get the sense of, you know, she's sort of somewhere between like a little bit older than she should be for, you know, being single and, and, you know, clearly the rest of her family isn't around. And so it's sort of like that. She's the uh, tomboy that that didn't get her book. Yeah, I'm not sure if it's either with pathos or with a certain degree of uh, respectability and pride in oneself that when uh, Pratchett points out that when Vimes is looking around her room, he thinks to himself that it's the room of a woman who never expected anyone else to see it. Yeah. I'm not sure whether he's saying that with a certain degree of tragedy or with a certain degree of, well, you go, girl, you found your own life. Maybe a mix of the two. Um, Yeah. I, I guess I, I sort of imagine the adult that has all of the uh, like stuffed ponies surrounding her bed, and and the, the the first dude that comes in there is just like, oh god, what have I gotten myself into? <laughs> Vimes has that has that thought consistently over the course of the novel. I'm not I'm I'm not sure whether he's just very uncomfortable around women or very uncomfortable around her, but. He takes a lot of pains over the course of the story in the early going to not be in the same room alone with her if he can. Yeah, and I, it's it's really hard to tell why, as, as you say, but I don't know. I sort of I sort of get the sense that he knows that he's going to be railroaded. Yeah, I um, sort I, of by by the train that she is. Um, I, I, I agree with that interpretation. I think one could, it could possibly be that, you know, he's just lived a bit of a monastic lifestyle and being dedicated to watch whatever else. But I think the more likely event is that he sees what she intends to do. And he also is like, as the usual characters in this world knows what the plot knows, the plot line, the books are trying to railroad him onto, and he's just trying to avoid it coming. Also, I mean, you're, you're a bit taller than I am, but but if you see a, a a large and buxom woman look at you with the snusu look, it, it, it's one of those things that is just like, oh god, okay, uh, okay. Yeah, there, there's a certain intimidation factor that's at play, is there not? Yeah, it, it's sort of one of those things that that is just like you know, it's not something I, I'm against, but it's still somewhat of a resignation. <laughs> I mean, one of the uh, we talked about the downfall of the noble class, and I think 
One of the key characters that we have to reference there, not only for his relevance to Bimes' character arc over the course of this novel, but also his relevance to the City of Ankh Morpork's character novel, character uh, route over the course of this novel and, prior, and previous ones, is the, the Lord Patrician himself, Lord Vetinari, who seems yeah. to have fundamentally changed how this world works when he came into power. That I th- agree with you that the nobility appears in some ways to be on the way out, the usual traditions appear to be falling apart, and a much more, I'd almost say, capitalist society is being put in its place that just runs efficiently but without any of the degree of decorum or order that the rest of society was, was previously built upon. Yeah, I think it'd be wonderful if we had somebody that, you know, one of our friends is a little bit more familiar with uh, UK semi-recent history, but I feel like it could very well be around the time that Pratchett was growing up that there was this large change from, you know, maybe the House of Lords having a lot more say or, you know, the the at least nobility or semi-nobility essentially having control to this a little bit more the businesses and, and the middle at middle class and maybe the nouveau riche that, that are rich because of uh, business as opposed to being landed gentry really taking over Britain because that's what it sort of is reminiscent of where, you know, it's these guilds that are basically titans of business that are taking over the running of the city as opposed to the laws and traditions that were there previously, which had been breaking down for a while, but now are thoroughly turned over to these corporations. And it's interesting to see how all the characters react to this, of where everyone kind of resents and dislikes the patrician for the world that he's built because of the traditions that they were raised in, because of the history of the city, because of what they view as the right and proper course for how things should be handled. But no when one... When they don't know him. What'd you say? When they don't know him. Yeah. Nobody did... So it, it's interesting because basically none of the characters that we meet, and this changes to an extent throughout the progression of the book, but basically none of the characters that we meet know the Grand Master, or sorry, the uh, the patrician, uh, Lord Venetari, Vetinari. Hmm. Wow, this is not going well. <laughs> doing, um, doing fine, doing fine. Keep going. <laughs> know him very well, except for his secretary, and even there, like we're not really sure. So basically, he's he's the um, the old wise man that Captain Vines meets on his hero's journey. I yeah. would almost say, but it, he's very much an unknown, and I think that's why he's more feared and disliked than anything else because as we get to sort of the end of the book basically everybody that knows him even a little bit seems to quite like him and and you know want to help him out and and agree to a certain extent with what he's doing um and a character that we'll probably mention a little bit later and go into a little bit the librarian mm-hmm. he seems to be fairly friendly with Oh yeah, it's important to note that as much as the character, as much as a lot of the characters seemingly resent the patrician, very few people. I mean, with the exception of one group, everyone's kind of still content with his rule. I mean, as much as they say, "Oh, he's he's horrible. He's doing horrible things," no one really wants to overthrow him. No one really dislikes the society that he's building. Pretty much everybody agrees that it's more efficient and works better than what they knew previously. They seemingly just kind of resent him and resent what he's doing just 
for the degree that it doesn't respect prior customs that they were that they grew up and used to. He doesn't present himself as a noble the way prior kings or leaders did. He doesn't put on airs. He doesn't make a big scene. He doesn't have the same noblesse aura about him. He's practical, efficient, and supremely competent. He's of, he's very much of a of a new age of leader that when people know him or when people well. I would, people in some ways resent what he's doing, but they still like the world that he's building. And as you said, a lot of people that get to know him either like him or, in the case of Vimes, view him as a necessity. And and respect him. Yeah, and fair and I just realized what Ankh-Morpok embodies. What's that? Keep calm and carry on. Very, uh, very, 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 to an excessive degree. And, and, like, I never put the, that two and two together when I was reading it, and, and even when they were describing it, but, like, the more we talk about, you know, British society, Pratchett was very much a part of in, in post-World War Two was the keep calm and carry on mentality, and that, that comes up throughout the books, and for the most part, very much defines our characters, mm-hmm. yeah. and at least at the beginning. Yeah, and, and it's very interesting to see... As much as he's in some ways overturning the institutions of the world, he's you know banishing the old Victorian period of England to the dustbin. He views the Night's Watch as a necessary fixture of the past to persist into the future. He's reduced them to irrelevance, but you seem to think that's almost like it's a part of like a long-term plan on his part. He talks when we see through and, and not even irrelevance because he's he has somebody that he seems to think is competent yeah he's in, in the spot it's just you know him being able to control when this person when captain vimes is doing his job and pursuing things as as is part of his job is sort of part of the master plan and it's very much a it's halfway between just a an organization in name that they're sort of keeping around, but if necessary, it's actually functional and actually doing like what he needs. And so I'd say that it's, it's very much one of those, like, here's a plant that we're going to reference later in the book and is super important Mm -hmm. kind of thing where he knows he has something to rely on and something to, and, and a group that, he says to you know to the world, oh yeah, you know we're just keeping around so everybody's comfortable. But you know he has an ace in the hole. I agree. I think in some ways he's kind of uh, reduced the watch to be below suspicion, so that nobody else factors them into their plans. They are the secret weapon that he can bring to bear that no one's taken an account of, because from the views of everyone else in the world, they are irrelevant. They are powerless. Only Vetinari knows their true potential and knows that how. When Vimes is appropriately manipulated, usually with, you know, uh, a certain degree of uh, negative reinforcement, he <laughs> he was capable of incredible things, along with the Night Watch with him. Yeah. And, and, and you know, clearly they, they're not important. They don't have plumes. And the plumes govern everything. I mean, without plumes, how can you tell that somebody's important? They don't have the various fixtures of royalty. I exactly. think... I think in some ways Vetinari is very, very, very aware of the fact that this city associates value, this city associates relevance with the various, you know, largesse of nobility, the various 
uh, emblems of nobility, the various emblems of royalty. And so because of that, he's able to hide things in plain sight by not having them have those features, including himself. And and I think he d- he's very cognizant of the trappings mm-hmm. are almost the most important thing and and is very important to the city, which almost backfires on them in a very funny way. But, you know, he knows that when he's crowning the uh, Night's Watch as heroes, that he needs to give them something. Right. And so it's problematic that they basically say, oh, well, you know, a couple bucks a month more maybe and, and a tea kettle would be great. And he's just like, oh, crap, like, you know, we need to hold them up as heroes to, to have the city rally behind me again. Mm-hmm. And it's he realizes what the function of appearance is Very much so. and, and how important that is to the city. And I, I think sort of the one part that makes it hilariously clear how important uh, appearances are to the city is the horde that they contribute to the dragon. Which is essentially just painted lead, right? Yeah, it, it's essentially refuse and, and whatever they can find painted gold. Yeah. And, you know, so to the city, very much the appearance of what something is is more important than the substance. Right. Because in terms of just sheer substance, I think it's probably fair to say that we don't see someone over the course of these books that has the same skill set and potential and intelligence that Lord Vetinari does. I mean, the book strongly suggests that he is aware of everything at all times and everything is just another move in an elaborate game that really only he's playing with himself. Yeah, and, and, and it's interesting that the nemesis... I would say that he has in this book essentially calls himself the Supreme Grand Master. Right. Which Grand Master is a fairly common term for, you know, like a chess master or go or something like that. Somebody who, you know, plans many moves in ahead and, and is knowledgeable about all of those things. And Vetinari very clearly despises that appearance. Very much so. He hates. And- he hates that kind of airs. That's not the kind of character or the kind of world that he chooses to operate in. And, and I'm going to give a, a shout out to another book that, that I didn't enjoy as much as so many other people um, did, is that he's very low key. Um, huh. and, and that other book is American Gods. Mm. Yeah. Um, I've, yeah, I've got mixed feelings about that one myself, really. <laughs> um, but, you know, he tries to fly under the radar in a very low-key manner Uh and basically tries to accomplish his grand schemes through through means that the city isn't used to. Yeah, I think that provides a good transition to uh, another of our major characters. And I think another character that's very relevant to Vimes' development as well because he's one of the few characters we see that is very much aware of Vimes' childhood where Vimes came from and how much the two of them in some ways mirrored each other and where they've gone. And that is Lupin Wants, the uh, supreme grand master of the elucidated brethren and our, as much as we could say, our bad guy of this story. Oh, I could swear it was the people's Judean front, but... In many ways, in many ways, including (laughs) with very suicidal behavior in the end. Exactly. Um, Yeah, so he's the... Secretary, I would 
I was gonna say the Grand Vizier. Yeah. He's the um. Oh, what's the dude's name in? Uh, is it Aladdin? Jafar. Yes. He's very Jafari, purposefully so. Yes, and and it's interesting because I feel like in his description, I do not imagine him as Jafar at all. No, I imagine him as a as a little as a little portly secretary. So a little bit more like the spider. Much more spidery, yes. Um, uh, but it, he's an interesting character because he is, in many ways, the face of Vetinari's organization. He's the one that most of the people deal with. He's the one that actually signs the letters, like the first letter that uh, arrives at Kara, apparently with impressively bad handwriting. Um, and so, for most of the operation of the city, he is at the forefront of it. And as a result of that, I feel like his he as a character maybe has a little bit too much competent, uh, confidence at the full extent of his knowledge and the full extent of his abilities, and how easily the city could transition to him being in an in-charge kind of role. Yeah, I, I think it's sort of one of those times that, that you have like a technician or something like that that knows how to do what they're given and knows a lot of things that go along around them, but never actually has to make decisions. Mm-hmm. And then basically says, well, you know, I do all of these things. It's clearly not that hard. So, you know, why, why am I taking instructions from somebody else? He, he's the Peter principle embodied where he does a task very well, but that in no way implies that he could be successful in managing people of that task. Yeah. I, I think very much so. Essentially, when we start out, we don't really know that the Supreme Grandmaster is Lupine Wands, and I think we're introduced to the Supreme Grandmaster before, way before we, we talk about Lupine Wands and who he is and, and what he does. I think so, yeah. And basically, um, he's trying to, he gathers, you know, basically the scum of the city mm-hmm. into his uh, neckbeard crew, and can't control them, yeah. you know, can't really convince them to do what he wants and, and tries to direct them to um, gather magical items from the city for him to be able to uh, complete his nefarious plot, which is summoning a dragon. And, you know, this d- dragon that he summons, he's going to bring in his nephew that he has out in a farm somewhere, and he's going to instill his nephew into be the king of Ankh-Morpok, and then be able to essentially be the character behind the scenes, ruling in his uh, nephew's stead. And he can't even convince, you know, the four or five, they don't have any spine i would say whatsoever and and basically no outlook in life he can't convince them to do a few menial tasks and not you know mutter to themselves while he's convening his meeting and it's he's the very much opposite in body he embodies the the yang to veterinary's yin he is you know very functional in certain things but has thinks he has a master plan and he doesn't. Mm-hmm. Whereas Vetinari doesn't seem to actually ever want to do anything, at, you know, however capable he may be, but he always has a plan and or something to fall back in and is not conf- confident in it whatsoever mm-hmm. and has seven others. Right. And, and I think a, a key difference to point out with their characters is the degree to which they respect competence and respect their underlings. 
of where, as we talked about with Lord Vetinari, he very much respects those of skill and wants to use and make will make good use of those who would actually be able to contribute, those who have the abilities necessary to assist him at key moments. Be it, and is a good eye for skill. Very much so. Be it, be it of course, recognizing Vimes' potential, recognizing Carrot's potential, even recognizing the rat's potential that he you know trains and uses to his ends at the ends of the story. He is constantly aware of how those around him can assist him and, uh, and what their abilities that they can bring to bear are. Whereas with Lupin Wants, we see in his mind that uh, he purposely wants people who are incompetent around him, people of low ambitions and low ability. And if he ever starts to deduce anyone like, say, Brother Fingers is skilled, is competent, is potentially intelligent, his first thought is, I gotta be careful around that guy. I gotta, I gotta get rid of that guy. He's a threat to me. He has and, a, and a completely different outlook on life where because he is good at the few things that he's good at, he thinks that he can get everybody good at those things. Mm-hmm. Whereas Vetinari finds people that are good at the things they're good at, like Vimes, like like Lupine up until the point that he betrays him, but like all of these people and brings out the best in them. And you know, I said that, that Lupine is sort of the end to uh, Vetinari's yang, but Vetinari is also the other side of the coin to the nobility. Very much so. Very much so. Uh, I, so I, I, I think it's a, a demonstration of how the, the different levels of humility about the characters are key, too. If we're, Vetinari is, I don't know if I necessarily know as humble is a certain right word, but he has enough perspective about his role and the... Uh, uh, the very fickle nature of the people of Ankh-Morpork, that he has designed the jail cell with full expectation that he is someday going to be in it. Right. That he... and, and I think that the, basically how he does things and, and what Lupine wants is, Lupine wants is the, I think, embodiment of somebody who craves the um, power and the respect and all of the trappings that the nobility has mm-hmm. and thinks that's where power comes from. Yeah. And I think that in some way, I mean, do we think that's a, to a certain degree um, representative of his, of where he came from? I mean, the book takes pains to say that he is a street child, that he like Vimes was part of the lowest of the gangs and slowly worked his way up with his intelligence, with his ability. Does I think some, that's hmm? exactly what it is. And, but I think that it was, I mean, you know, I'm reading into a lot of the history that we don't know about, Mm -hmm. but I would guess that he would have grown up during a more noble ruling. Mm -hmm. And so how he deals with his underlings is how he imagines the nobility dealing with their underlings. Right. And so he has such a completely different dealing with everybody around him, including Vetinari, than Vetinari does with everybody under him. That, and it's not respect, it's just, it's, he's trying to command them. And what I would say that he doesn't have, that Vetinari has to a certain extent, but Sybil uh, Remkin in some ways embodies, is noblesse oblige, mm-hmm. which is the obligation of the the person in power to their underlings and that's really what he's missing very much so very much so there is just an there's such an arrogance about his character that as the librarian points out he's an individual that takes a book for the purpose of summoning dragons 
and looks at it and sees that the back half of it is burned to a crisp. And his first thought is, well, I was better than he was, so I'll do better. There's a, there's a level of profound arrogance about him that he's so fully invested in the idea that he is capable of succeeding in putting on these royal layers and taking the nobility that he's willing to sacrifice everything to come about in a way that I don't think Vet, – I think Vetinari is very much a character that would never sacrifice anyone or anything that had value so long as he could avoid it, whereas Wants would lose them with, that with hardly a thought. Yeah, Vetinari clearly treasures all of the things around him in a way that you don't see in many characters. Mm -hmm. You see, it, you, the, the characters that you see it in, you know, we sort of hold up as incredibly wise characters. That, you know, he, he's, he's definitely not a Gandalf, mm -hmm. but you can sort of see that in him where, you know, he really values people and things that most everybody else in society completely writes off and gets things from them that no one else does. Which leads to a practical question, which I, is worth pondering, that his worldview is that there are only bad men. Do we think that this is... He, well, he's, this, doesn't he actually tell Vimes that at one point, that... Uh, there, there are only bad men. They just, they just have different motivations. Yeah, I, I think that you know when they're in prison and and. Yes, yeah. I think Vimes even asked him, "How do you get up in the morning?" or something like that. Um, yeah. So, do we think, in some ways, that this is again just part of his various motivating of Vimes, or do we think this is actually his worldview that he is pragmatic enough that he sees the world as just various shades of gray and there's just various currents that he can manipulate for what he thinks is the proper purpose. Ooh, that's that's really tough. I mean, I think that, I think that he thinks that there is an evil inclination mm -hmm. in many people, but maybe not that everybody is is evil or or bad or, or you know whatever. But it's something that most people don't take into account that there there are drives and there are desires and there are wants that are useful even in that, that are useful in everybody mm -hmm. and particularly in the people that he needs to deal with, right. whether he feels that way for everybody that he has to deal with. I mean, I, it, it's sort of one of those things that, you know, you talk to a teenager about when they become, you know, a serious adult, you say, well, no, not really, but it's something that you sort of need to know when, you know, you're getting the crap kicked out of you in, in high school or, or, you know, you know, the awful things that can happen in college or something like that. But, you know, once everybody grows up, it's often a little bit different. Yeah, I think it's a, I, I, I agree with that. I think it's a kind of, um, I think it may be the way of describing it is that he sees everyone with inherently selfish motivations and that understanding that and understanding how to manipulate that is a necessity in terms of being able to survive. That's why I feel like in some ways the watch well, the few moments we see him truly flat-footed is at the end of when he expects the various members of the Watch to have selfish motivations, to have these grand views and grand designs that he expects everyone else to be motivated by. And they defy him, that they defy his expectations, they defy his view of humanity in that moment. Yeah. And and so I would say, getting back to, to the character that... The, we sort of touched on a couple of times after saying we're, that we're going to focus on him. Yeah, going back to Wants. Yeah, so so with Wants, I feel like you have the the twisted version of that. Mm -hmm. 
that that everybody's out for their their own benefit to a certain extent until like I get my influence on them and then they're out for my benefit and they'll do whatever I want. And I feel like he's sort of, he doesn't have the inspirational qualities of the upper class Mm -hmm. and he doesn't have the understanding that Vetinari does. And so the way that he deals with everybody under him is, you know, he basically locks into being able to actually summon this dragon. Mm-hmm. It's sort of one of those clubs that everybody's just like, I don't know why I'm here anymore. Everybody hates it, but they still show up. Yeah. I think uh, Vetinari in some ways delights in taunting um, wants at the end with his lack of understanding. What with uh, Vetinari's room trick, where uh, Vi- uh, wants is trying to get away from Vetinari's surprise appearance on the scene. And Watts apparently knows so little about the even the building that he's worked and lived in for years that Vetinari's just calmly moving through secret passages, constantly being right in front of him, and Wants is none the wiser about how he's doing it. Uh, one of the things you referenced, which I find kind of interesting, um, is you talked about how a lot of the a lot of the degree to which people like Wants or the other various peasants of the city, um, why they have to hold such a positive view of the nobility is because it's the world that they were raised in, in some ways that they were connected to the idea that I want them to be in place because if they're in place, I can be one of them someday. Or I can, you know, that, that's the dream to aspire to. And that's in some ways why they resent Vetinari because he removed that ultimate goal from the equation. It reminds me of an old, um, I'm going to butcher and paraphrase it, John Steinbeck quote of, uh, they asked him, you know, why wasn't there ever, ever a communist revolution or a socialist revolution in the United States? And rough a paraphrase, he essentially said that it's a particular quirk of the poor in America that the poor do not believe themselves to be poor. They believe themselves to be temporarily aggrieved millionaires. And I think that in many ways the people of Ankh-Morpork um, kind of hold to that view, that they want the nobility, they want the royalty around, because in some ways those trappings give them something to aspire to in a way that Vetinari's city doesn't. See, that's interesting, because like I view it differently. Because I, I think that that view is sort of a very American dream and capitalist view that just doesn't apply in the British system we're talking about here. Yeah, essentially, because I think that that what Vetinari is is representing would be more closer to the American dream than what uh, Wants seems to try and be bringing about, which is, you know, he wants essentially noble control, but everybody else seems to be comfortable with it and i i feel like we are missing out on the british view of things because sure as far as i can tell they love the royals so much mm-hmm. and my concept and you know this is a you know mostly from watching british cooking and baking shows is that that was revered and, and, you know, people were happy being, there was a comfort in knowing the succession, you know, the line that, that there are people that are in control that are looking out for the, the national and local good. And you know who they are. One of the things, if we're, you know, framing what Vitnari is doing is trying to aspire to a capitalist system that he lacks that American capitalism very much, embodied back in the Gilded Age and still does today, is that it still has a concept of the beautiful elite. It still has a concept of the wealthy class. It still has a concept of 
those that you see as the above us all as those to aspire to. Uh, they're not nobility. Everybody's capable of somebody being part of them, according to the American dream theory, but they're still a visible example of what success brings. That Nari system doesn't seem to have those gilded age equivalents. At least, at least if they do, they're not described in the course of the book. I don't know. I, I'd say it's a little bit more the George R. R. Martin view of the nobility. It's you know either somebody that's manipulated their way into power or fought a little bit better or whatever else. And and in uh, Vetinari's world, that would be you know essentially manipulated or you know had a good business or a good guild or whatever else. It, it's not the the classical mythos of the nobility. No, very much. I, I very much agree. It's, what he seems to be practically promises efficiency more than anything else. It's almost like he's almost describing communist goals, but with a capitalist system to bring them about. Yeah, it's kind of like the um, Futurama bureaucracy. <laughs> practically, yeah. You know, it's a, it's a well-oiled machine. We might not get anything done at any particular pace or time or whatever, but everybody knows what they need to do, and everybody is impressively responsible for everything underneath them. All right. There's a comfort in having certainty about your day and your life. Well, move. It, it's the uh, staying in a queue. That <laughs> was keeping back to British themes. Yes, there is there is a comfort in the queue. Um. You know, we've got so many characters we can cover over this, but I feel like we should probably just end up with uh, who is the ultimate hero of the story, uh, Errol the Dragon. Yes. Uh, I feel a little bit, bit uh, like I did him a disservice in my notes. But <laughs> What did you say about Errol the Dragon in your notes? Uh, well, we're going a little bit bluer than we usually go, but, but I have Errol-Dragonfucker. Yes, in many ways. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, we, we we've we've discussed before the romance that is the undercurrent of the story as being you know Vimes and Lady Rampkin. In reality, the uh, the romance that is constantly driving this, though we didn't, weren't clear about it until the very end, is Errol and the lady affections of the queenly noble dragon. Um, yeah, so so Errol um, are the hero actually of oh. of the story, the one who saves the city. And, uh, shall we say fends off the dragon? I, I feel like that's a little, um... Well, I mean, he straight knocks her out of the sky. I think it's even fair to say that he defeats her. <laughs> um, yeah, so, uh, I don't think I mentioned this the last episode, and I meant to, but the the resolution very much reminded me of one of the um, Shrek movies, where the donkey ends up with the... Oh, the giant red dragon? Yes. And, and so so the, the essential swamp dweller uh, has babies. And, and I wonder if this was a little bit of a callback to this book where... It's possible. Uh, the, this uh, ugly, motley, you know, swamp dragon ends up romancing the, the, the noble dragon. Yeah. In, I think if we want to tie this in again to Vimes and the Watch, I mean, he's pretty quickly adopted as the mascot of the Watch. But then to, yeah. but then to defeat his challenger, then to defeat that which is, you know, 
oppressing him, keeping him down, that which that he's been lost twice in battle before, he changes himself. He alters his own chemistry, he alters his own plumbing, so that he can emerge again to confront the new world that he's being tasked with. Yeah. It, so Is so it a I, metaphor? I, I, I don't know. He was basically the, uh, the get well charm that Vimes had when he was uh, under the care of uh, Lady, Lady Rampion. Rampion. Yeah, she, she essentially gives it to him because the arrows seem to take to him. Errol being the most mutant and dysfunctional and inbred, seemingly, of all of the various dragons that she has, but seemingly very attached to Vimes and the Watch. Um, uh, I, I don't think he was the one that Vimes essentially used as the equivalent of a forty-four Magnum, but uh, it, 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 <laughs> Vimes used a different one to do his little Dirty Harry bit, right? Uh, yeah, I don't remember which one it was, but I, I do think it was a different one. I think it was one of the ones from from the pens or, or whatever. I think so. Yeah. Um, but but yeah, Errol basically you know goes from being you know a, a vaguely treasured but not not the uh, pride of the litter, not not a show. <laughs> no, swan no, no. dragon. But it, he, it's. It, it, he it, might win the the ugliest dragon, but very, he, he's definitely not going to win any other prizes. Very much so. The, the watch is clearly taken with him. I, I, I thought it was kind of cute how each quietly hiding it from the other were buying him little uh, toys and treats. Even Vimes brought him a little uh, squeaky pink uh, hippo, right? Yeah, and, and they, they, I think they were also sort of covering his uh, little messes and, and eating random things in their... Uh, uh, outposts and and things like that, and they 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 were sort of all making sure that you know he he didn't get into too much trouble. Though I don't know that they could have really prevented it. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know we can relate the evolution of of Errol the dragon with uh, Captain Vimes and sort of the Night Watch in general because he basically starts out as a completely useless and in name only uh, dragon, mm-hmm. but as throughout the the book, he changes himself and, and essentially betters himself until he's uh, an impressive force to be reckoned with. And in the end, as a result of his accomplishments, as a result of his triumphs, he gets the girl. So Errol is essentially in dragony form living Vimes' story over the course of this novel, isn't he? I mean, probably in, in terms of uh, size, too. <laughs> yeah, I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> so, Errol... <laughs> I, I guess I didn't really put two and two together here, but Errol was essentially living a parallel plot to Vimes over the course of this story. I mean, well, I, Vimes just doesn't have to eat quite as many kettles and, and uh, flammable things to, to get his girl. Yeah, and Vimes, uh, Vimes arrives in the scene through the aid of a helpful orangutan rather than jet propulsion out of his ass. Yeah, I mean, you know, teach the method of conveyance their own. Yeah, I, yeah, I don't think Vimes literally has the plumbing necessary to pull off that particular bit of ass blasting, but he finds his own way to succeed in his story. Uh, yeah, so um, Errol goes through this transformation and goes from being sort of this drab sad thing and becomes this silvery shiny dragon that's propelling himself like a bullet and and really saves the day 
and and the I mean the very last lines of the book are reserved to him as he uh, he and the uh, noble dragon are now traveling seemingly across the cosmos that surrounds the disc world um, with it the book leaving to ponder in the end whether the magic between them will last and you know maybe we'll find out in a later book if you we know, ever do yeah <laughs> I, I, I'm inclined to doubt you will maybe I'll send you a text if I ever reach that point. Um, but I actually do have the color of magic, you know, a, a physical copy. So I will at some point return to to the land of Pratchett and this world and and the elephants on turtles. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I, I'm always consistently amazed by the sheer number of books you have that you have not read. It seems like you have a vast collection that's been assembled by various means and ways that's just kind of sitting on a library somewhere waiting to be read at some point in the future. Yeah, so so I think that that's very much a combination of uh, my picking up books and then inheriting a lot of books from my father who had a life... I do not understand how he accumulated so many books and or, like... I assume he read most of them, if not all of them, because I've definitely, he told me about things that he really loved about the disc world. Um, I remember that at some point when um, he taught me quite a bit about some uh, woodworking and, and we were doing some lathe work and, and I think building some furniture, he was like, Oh, I, you know, there's this uh, sentient pear wood in the disc world that, you know, there's a chest made out of and it follows people. It had been, you know, it had been so cool if I, I could have had some sentient pear wood and, you know, you could make all kinds of cool things from it. And I was like, oh, okay, that's a little weird, but sure. Um, but, but yeah, I, I inherited probably thousands of books that, you know, at some point maybe I'll go through all of them, but, um, yeah. Slowly but surely. Yeah, a substantial portion of what I read from about age six through about 17 were books that my dad had read, but so long ago he didn't really remember them, so he gave them to me to read so that I could remind him what they were about. Right. <laughs> he read Lord of the Rings at like age 18 and vaguely remembered it, and so the movies were coming out, so he basically had me read them so that I could remind him what they were before we went to go see the movies. But... Sounds like a really good way to do it. You know, I appreciated it at the time. But I, I think we've covered enough of characters right now for guards, guards. There's plenty of others to address, like the librarian, like uh, what's a cutting my own throat dibbler, or, or many many other characters that are relevant. But I think we've done a broad enough brush for the time being. So yeah, I think we've covered most of the major characters and the important ones. And, and if we talked about the librarian, we'd have to get into the mess that is L space. So. Uh, let's leave that alone for now. I think we can go into a certain degree of world building about that uh, in, in our next episode, if we so wish, uh, just because I, I think it's confusing enough to merit an inclusion. Well, as said, uh, we're dividing up guards, guards into a three part series. We've finished up our characters for the time being. And next, next time we will come back for analysis of the world and the world building and what it embodies or represents and what we can deduce from it from our kind of limited perspective on it now uh bj once we finish up with guards guards next week we will need to go on to another book in about two weeks time um yeah. i don't you know had a suggestion for that i did um you know 
Terry Pratchett was, you know, a foundation of fantasy, but I felt like we might want to go somebody who is more uh, recently relevant just to uh, maybe bring in new and current fans. Uh, there's a book that a friend recommended to me because she's a big fan of uh, young adult works and big fan of fantasy by Patrick Ness of where it's a book that was recently made into a movie with Liam Neeson called uh, A Monster Calls. It's a novella, uh, kind of like a graphic novel novella, which I, it, I found it quite interesting and quite, quite affecting in its own way, uh, which I think you might appreciate if you haven't read it before. Have you read any Patrick Ness? I have not read any of his work, and I'm not particularly familiar with him as an author, so I look forward to uh, going through it. It's, it's a 200-page uh I mean, find a version that's got the pictures because the artwork that's attached to it is quite impressive. But it's a pretty quick read. It's a pretty, it's a good page turner, and so I think it'll be a good one for us to have as a simpler one to focus on in two weeks' time. And from there, you know, I believe it should. Well, it's technically your turn to make a recommendation. So if you have any good ideas for what to follow after that, I will be eager to give them a try. You've yep, given you, you've given us some good ones to start. I'll definitely figure uh, some stuff out, and hopefully things that are relatively easy to come by and uh hopefully in a couple of months though that might not be too many books in um we'll probably be doing some george r r martin and maybe a little bit of crossover with our uh sister podcast shall we say yeah. uh got questions yeah as we as we hinted at over the last episode one of our thoughts is that um there's a collection of novellas that are in the a song of ice and fire game of thrones universe called the duncan egg series which a lot of people were hoping would be the next show that hbo would do just because of how popular they are it's three relatively short novellas we thought that given that bj's not read them and given the uh their popularity and their tie into other show that we could start out with the first of the Duncan Egg series, maybe around New Year's time, and then have you all around to enjoy it with us. But so, yeah, we will that sounds good. And uh, possibly next episode we might have a return of our, uh, shall we say, guest. <coughs> uh, and uh, I think he's going to join in the uh, craziness that is our world-building episode. Can we convince him to have read maybe ten more Kindle pages before he starts? I feel like 50 is a good round number for him to end on. I feel like, you know, a, a complete browsing of the Wikipedia is, is about as far as we're going to get. Knowing Wikipedia, he may, it may give him a more rounded view of the universe than we have. <laughs> you might get a certain degree of bleed-in from the other novels, but we will see and we will find out. For the meantime... BJ, it has been a pleasure. Um, I don't think Always we have time, Spencer, and um, that I forgot the uh, last thing. You can probably find us on iTunes if I successfully do upload this, as well as MangumTalks.com and um, all of our content from Got Questions, the uh, Mangum Reads, and anything else that, that we put up will be also on Reddit under uh, Mangum Talks. And hopefully there's going to be a Got Questions episode coming out in the near future. I do, again, I play no role in the process of editing. My understanding of technology kind of ended about the year 1500, so all these shiny boxes with lights and gizmos kind of confuse me. So I will count on Lee to upload that at any point when he's got it edited. Sounds good. But everybody, it's been a pleasure. We... Uh, we will look forward to next week to finish up Guards Guards, and uh, we hope you'll be there with us. BJ, have a good one till then. Thank you, too. Thanks for tuning in.